And after reading the first 18 verses there, we'll turn to Romans 8. First, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Romans 8, where we read the verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So far, the reading of God's holy word, let us respond with the singing of Psalm 2, the stanzas 3 and 4. The text for the proclamation of the gospel this afternoon is God's word as it is summarized and confessed by the Church in Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we find on page 528 of our books of praise. And here the Catechism continues, the confession concerning our deliverance, that's the second main part. And in particular, we have been busy these last few Sundays with those articles dealing with God the Son and our redemption, 
name of Jesus as well as Christ and Christians. And so here in Lord's Day 13, it is asked and answered, why is he called God's only begotten son, since we are also children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal natural son of God, we, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. In response to the proclamation of the gospel, let us sing from Psalm 20, the stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, it is said of the Lord in Psalm 76, verse 4, You are resplendent with light, more majestic than the mountains. You are resplendent with light, more majestic than the mountains. And that Lord, this majestic Lord, is pleased also this afternoon to dwell in our midst. Do we think about that whenever we are gathered together to hear the gospel, Christ's church? He's right here. For the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And so he's very close to us. It's an awesome thing. For that means that also this afternoon you and I stand on holy ground. Just as surely as Moses did, as the children will remember when the Lord met him there at the burning bush. We confess already this afternoon that our help is in the name of the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. And now we know that our Lord's names are much more than mere labels or incidentals. They are revelation from God. We've learned that Jesus means Savior. Christ is our anointed prophet, priest, and king. And our Lord, as we learn in this Lord's Day, indicates his power. His power and his grace in delivering us from the darkness of sin. But now, what does it mean for you and me that he's called God's only begotten son? What benefit is that for us? And it's not immediately evident, I think, that there is great benefit for us in that name. Even the catechism at first reading, it appears to be a bit shy about it. It seems to hasten to point out that actually Jesus is not the only son of God, since we are also God's children, be it that we are his adopted sons and daughters. Caspar Olivian, one of the co-authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, he wrote a little book, still in print today, in English, called A Firm Foundation. It's a commentary on this section of the Heidelberg Catechism that deals with the Apostles' Creed. And while Olivian, when he comes to Lord's Day 13, he asks, what is the purpose of the next phrase, his only begotten Son? And then he answers in part, it assures our faith of the great 
overflowing love of God toward us, which far exceeds any creaturely form of love. And then he quotes two well-known scripture passages, John 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, as well as 1 John 4, verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. So it's quite clear that that co-author of the Catechism realized that that name, God's only begotten Son, has everything to do with God's great love for us, in which he rescued us from sin and from death. And so he concludes, thus we learn from this article that God deals with us not only with promises and with his precious oath, but with deeds, with deeds, deeds of love. Deeds of grace, deeds that should fill us with thankfulness and joy for this great Savior and Lord. He's the one who wrapped us up, as it were, in his great love. He extends his arms to us and he presses us close to himself, lest we should get lost, lest we should be lonely, lest we should think that, that, that we are all by ourselves here. So that in the midst of this world of confusion and loneliness, we might know also of our calling, our calling as children of God. He reveals our sonship in the one that he loves. So then let us cling to Jesus Christ, our one Redeemer, and learn of him and from him. And so confess the name of God's only begotten Son, our Lord. That's what we do in this Lord's Day. And then it is he who assures us of our sonship, and in the second place, it's he who makes us his servants. Confess the name of God's only begotten Son, our Lord. He assures us of our sonship, and he makes us his servants. First, that he assures us of our sonship. At first glance, brothers and sisters, this Lord's Day appears to actually con confront us with two conflicting things, things which would make us a bit shy in confessing them and, and perhaps leave us somewhat disappointed. First, it says we are children of God, be it by adoption. And then it says, in effect, that we are slaves of Christ. For if we are his possession, if we are owned by him, lock, stock, and barrel, then is our freedom not at risk? It, it seems at first glance, if then we are exploited, chained, we're slaves, slaves. Reverend A.J. van Zuylecum of the Netherlands wrote a series of booklets a number of years ago explaining the catechism, and he says, Children of the Father, ah, oh, that, that's a beautiful, that, that's a tender phrase. But then the Lord's possession or slaves of Christ, doesn't that sound harsh, even cruel? We might even be tempted to say that that gives you kind of a spiritual whiplash. Let's see if that is so. Yes, we are children of our Heavenly Father, and we are the personal possession of our Lord Jesus Christ. Confess that right away in Lord's Day 1. We're not our own, but belong body and soul, life and death to Jesus Christ. 
Indeed, that is so, for the Bible tells me so. But really, as von Zalikam also realizes, there is no contradiction here. For God's only begotten son, he's not some kind of slave driver, like those slave drivers that we know about in Egypt, when indeed God's people were there for hundreds of years. He's not who would drive us and chain us with a cruel whip. He's the God, the son of God's love for us. The son of God's love. His name, says the prophet Isaiah, in wide-eyed anticipation of his coming is, as we already heard this morning, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Beautiful titles of God's one and only Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This mighty God has delivered us from those shackles of sin and misery and shame which held us bound, adopted us to be his children and heirs. And you know, as it is indeed, we can make that comparison if indeed there are people who adopt someone. Then, then there's an outpouring of their love, indeed, for that child who had been abandoned. Well, now think of us. We, too, have been adopted. We had no right to being called God's children. Far from it. And God says, I want you to be mine. All mine. We saw it this morning, indeed, in the administration of holy baptism. And so God gave us not only breathing room, but he gives us salvation. He is the eternal, natural son of God who did that. That son of whom the writer to the Hebrews says that God spoke by him. By him whom God appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. That's Jesus Christ, the son who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. That's like saying in common vernacular, the spitting image. I say that with all due reverence. The spitting image of the Father. Indeed, with the Nicene Creed that we will confess this afternoon, we confess him to be God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father through whom all things were made. Oh, indeed, this confession has come in for denial, even for ridicule throughout the centuries. There have been a sad lineup of heretics, including the Arians of the fourth century and their spiritual descendants, the Jehovah Witnesses, who maintain that what we confess here and what we confess in the Nicene Creed is indeed false. They and not a few others with them consider Jesus to be no more than a creature. Oh, an angel perhaps, even a very important one, perhaps even the most important one, a noble, pure person maybe, even a son of God, a Lord, yet a creature, a creature made a lesser being than God. And so what we confess in the Athanasian Creed, that creed that we don't read very often, could have done so also this afternoon, so that the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, say those Jehovah Witnesses and those Arians, not one, not one. 
their glory not equal, their majesty not, not co-eternal. And like all heresies, that's a very sad and a very hopeless one. For they are in slavery still. For neither angels nor the most noblest and well-intentioned human being can deliver us from sin and grant us salvation. Such a creature, not true God, of true God, would have perished under the heavy burden of God's wrath. We confess that in an earlier Lord's Day as well. It would leave every son still groaning because the prison doors and the chains of sin would remain in place. And our gathering together each Lord's Day would be useless and no joy would be found in our hearts and on our lips and we'd be in doubt forever about our deliverance. Somehow, somehow, we'd have to try and earn our everlasting freedom. And you know, that would be indeed a dead-end road to travel. But Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. And you know that even the faithful Christ's Holy Catholic Church had difficulty with that expression in earlier years. Our small, our frail, our finite minds just cannot get around the thought that the Son had no beginning, that he always was and is and is to come, the eternal Son of God. Our, our finite minds can't grasp that. And yet, while we can't understand it, yet we know that we mustn't try in one way or another to chart our own path to heaven, as if indeed we could make it, if not the whole way, well then, quite, quite a way. And nor must we take anything away from this confession concerning our one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. We must simply rest and repeat that confession that the Apostle Peter once upon a time made when he was asked by our Savior, Who do you say that I am? And then Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew sixteen sixteen, And the life of this one and only Son of God didn't, be, didn't begin at Bethlehem, although it was there that he took upon himself our flesh and blood, except for sin. We give thanks for John's testimony concerning him, as we read in John 1. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. There you hear something of the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was he who told his followers, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said that. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Because he was, just as the Father, true and eternal God. He came into the world to reveal our Father to us. He did that. That was his task that he took upon himself. In amazement, John cries out, We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There are those who think that he said that, that confession, thinking back of what he saw on the mountain of transfiguration, when the Lord Jesus, for a moment, showed something of his divine glory to those three disciples which were there. No, this very God did not keep his distance. He could have done so could have stayed far away from us, seeing that we are but dust. Instead, 
says John, he made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled, or as we could also read, he tented among us with his own body. He made his dwelling there. Literally, it says he tabernacled. And that means he's much closer he was than he, to us than he was even to Israel in the desert when he made his presence known where? In the tabernacle. In the tabernacle. And then only the high priest was allowed only once a year to go into the most holy place where God dwelt in light between those angels, the cherubim on the ark in that most holy place. And yet now here we are gathered Sunday after Sunday, every Lord's Day, where he has poured out his Holy Spirit on his church and he is pleased to be in all of our midst. And he lives in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel. How great is his love. He's truly that son of God's love of whom Paul speaks in Colossians 1.13. That glorious son in whom we have redemption. And you know that big word, it simply means in which we are bought back. He bought us back. To be redeemed means to be bought back from the slavery of sin and the devil. It's in him and through him that we have our adoption as sons and daughters of God. Congregation, are we sufficiently aware, you and I, of this wondrous love of God for us in Jesus Christ? Do we stand amazed at it? Do we live out of that amazement that we are his children? For it will not do to point to the Arians and the Sicinians and the Unitarians and the Jews and the Muslims and say, you're all wrong. You're all wrong about God the Son. Of course we need to know what are their errors. And are we to meet the enemy in the gate? Are we to speak to them about the Lord Jesus Christ? But that doesn't, just knowing that they are wrong, that in itself does not make us right. Right in our confession concerning the same, for our confession must be a living, a living, a pulsing, as it were, reality. That's what it must be. Knowledge of our sonship in this wondrous Son of God means living in fellowship and communion with him, living out of his word, day by day, testing our lives, finding our lives, indeed, on that foundation that we heard of this morning is covenant love. And this only begotten Son of God did not leave it at words. No, his deeds speak even louder than his wondrous words of love to us. I think of what we confessed in Lord's Day 6, when there, in answer to the question, why must he be at the same time true God? We confess that it is by the power of his divine nature, by the fact that he is true God, he bore in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. And oh boy, what a burden that was. If you think about how the Lord God at times displays just something of that anger, that anger which in a moment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed them indeed completely so that there's nothing left indeed of those cities. 
That kind of anger, the anger of which the prophet Nahum speaks in his prophecy, that it says, indeed, his anger is like the power, the hammer that can break a rock in pieces, fire, indeed, that falls from the sky. He could not have taken that burden of God's wrath upon himself and restore us to righteousness and life if it was not for the fact that he was not only human, but true and right true God, that by that power he might bear the burden of God's wrath. If you think for a moment, if you reflect for a moment, that must be. If the Lord God is angry with one sin of one person, what must that anger be like with the sins of the world? And yet Christ's single sacrifice on Calvary's cross, single sacrifice, was sufficient to pay for all those sins and to take all that wrath upon himself. That should make us indeed understand a little bit better what it meant for the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was faced indeed with that suffering, when he saw, as it were, the cross looming. It was very close to him then that he said, my God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. When he knew that the burden of God's wrath had to be borne by him alone to free us from all of our sins and to give us life. Where would it leave us if he were not the eternal, natural Son of God? Still dead? Still without a hope? Every Sunday coming together as a church really would have no purpose if he was not God's eternal, natural Son. But God's Son suffered that bitter and shameful death. And he did so, says the author of the letter to the Hebrews, that he might bring many sons to glory. We see it portrayed before our eyes. We may taste and see it, the Lord willing, also next, next Sunday at the table of the Lord, that he gave his body and his blood so that indeed our sins might be paid for. Here we are, paupers who stumble and fumble our way through life often, often fearful, disobedient even. And yet we're called Church of Christ. Church of Christ. Every Sunday, the first thing that we hear is indeed the blessing of the Lord God on us, even when we've made a mess of it the night before grafted into Christ, buried with him, raised to sonship through his blood because he earned the right to the tree of life, a right given in our baptism that we have, might have the guarantee of life everlasting. And that means we must stand in awe of him who raised us. For indeed, he bore for us the wrath of God, as we confess at the Lord's Supper table. There he was bound that he might free us from our sins, that we might be accepted by God. Nevermore be forsaken. Think of that. Nevermore be forsaken by him. 
In Psalm 22, which is that psalm which prophesies about the suffering of God's righteous servant, there the triumphant Messiah says, I will declare your name, that is God's name, to my brothers, to my brothers. That's us. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he doesn't treat us as aliens, as also rans, as no accounts. He doesn't reject or dismiss us and assign us to the scrap heap. We sometimes, sometimes, sad enough, do that with other people. We do that, but God does not do that with us. He does not assign us to the scrap heap. As well, we might. He might because of our sinfulness. On the contrary, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, says God, the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 2. Both the one who makes men holy, that's Jesus Christ, you can also think of the Holy Spirit, and those who are made holy of the same family. And so our adoption to be God's sons and daughters is no slight thing. It's testimony of God's amazing grace. He ransomed us, says the catechism. He ransomed us, body and soul, completely from all our sins, and not with silver and gold, with diamonds and whatever, with his precious blood. And so we have fellowship. We have fellowship with God's one and only Son. And we would be in awe, in awe I think, if not in shock, if you and I were, were to be invited to have an audience with the queen. Uh-huh. Imagine that. You would tell your friends and your neighbors, your brothers and sisters, have an audience with her majesty, the queen. And now think of this. We're invited to live, not just to have an audience, but to live with this king of kings. Not just invited, but as we confess in Lord's Day 7, grafted like a branch is grafted into a tree, grafted into him and his church, which is his body, as God's own adopted children. To dine with him, not just as we do at the supper table of the Lord next week, Sunday, but to dine at what the Bible calls the supper table of the Lamb in life everlasting. And that son, says John, came unto his own, but his own had no use for him. They despised and rejected him. And yet all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so here we are, a whole family of adopted children. And just as with adoption of a child, the child receives full rights, full rights and freedom to inherit, to own that which his adoptive parents leave behind. And what has that parent left behind but the promise of a glorious inheritance, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, what is waiting for us in life everlasting. All the crown jewels that Queen Elizabeth may leave behind to Prince Charles or whoever can't compare with our inheritance as God's adopted children. Now, our society would have you and me believe something else. It would have you believe and me believe the lie that life does not center around Jesus, but it actually centers around the individual 
the individual, especially the individual who dares to say, it's about me, me, me. That's what it's about. That's what you hear in the media today. That's what you hear all over the place. Me, move over because it's me, me. One of the world's biggest lies. Here in this Lord's day, we say, no. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about him who adopted us, ransomed us. It's about he who died for me and who lives for me and who comes for me because he loves me. It's about God, yes, about God the Son and our redemption, it says above Lord's Day 11. It's about him who came down and tabernacled, made his dwelling among us. John says he saw God's glory. He saw God's glory. So let us treasure the rich privileges of belonging to God through the sacrifice of God's well-beloved Son. Oh, indeed, that sacrifice was precious. And the gifts of belonging to him are precious. I belong to my faithful Savior in life and in death. We're set free from the power of the devil, and he's a powerful one, but we're set free from that power. Preservation, assurance of life, joy unending, knowing God, loving him, yes, knowing of his love, in Jesus Christ, who first loved us, living with him forever blessed, God's wrath removed, God making Christ our wisdom, our righteousness, filled with the Spirit, God counselor, so governed by that we have patience in adversity and thankfulness in prosperity. United to these fellow saints, Myriads, yes, countless others, as the bride of Christ. I say, do we treasure, do I treasure the riches of being God's adopted son, daughter, in Jesus Christ, God's one and only? Let us stand before the mirror of God's word, God's law. For indeed, it doesn't just discover our sins, although it certainly does that, as we heard this morning, but it serves as a yardstick, a measuring stick of how thankful we are for God's deliverance. And what do we see, or better, what will God see in your life and in mine? In our life as church, as the bridegroom here in Elora, for whom Christ has shed his blood, for whom he fought and suffered and died and was victorious. And then he has promised in the way of bowing before him and pleading on his promises to make us strong, to fight the many temptations that come our way constantly until the day we breathe our last breath or we are changed in a moment if we happen still to be alive when Christ returns. And then, indeed, we'll be more than conquerors growing in faith and love even as we honor the Lord as his free slaves, bought with his blood, making us his servants or his slaves. Let us hear something about that yet in the second place. Indeed, to be a slave does have a rather unpleasant ring about it, doesn't it? 
can't help but think of what those Jews underwent in Egypt long ago or what many people in the world still undergo today, those who are in slavery, physical slavery, emotional slavery to overlords today. Calls to mind as well the oppression, the mistreatment of millions of colored people during the colonial period. Slavery oftentimes means exploitation, separation from one's loved ones, restlessness, little peace. It's a very unpleasant thing indeed. And yet, and yet in Bible times, slaves sometimes had an excellent, even an honored position. Think of that. You remember the name of Eliezer? Eliezer, he was Abram's trusted servant his slave. And yet if Abram had not received the son, then that servant, Eliezer, would have inherited Abram's wealth and his property. Think also of Joseph in Potiphar's household. Though he was that master's possession and for all intents and purposes was his slave, he was given a position of honor and of trust in that household. And now in question and answer 34, we confess our Lord. And we confess that it is he who paid that price that made us his possession, the price of his blood. Freed from the clutches of the devil who would have dragged us down, we became free slaves, free slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means we obtained a very high position, a very high position. For the Lord we serve is King of kings and Lord of lords. We belong to him. King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. He's the kurios, the Lord, not just of a manor, not just of a piece of territory, a few acres with a castle and a moat and maybe a dragon and a few dozen servants, no. For though he himself took the very nature of a servant and humbled himself, Philippians 2.7, he received all authority in heaven and on earth he because, because he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And we, you and I, belong to that king, that mighty, that glorious king. What an honor. <coughs> The prophet prophesied of him by saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 2, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110. And yet not only did he become a Lord, a short time before he went to the cross, he spoke about the day of his return saying, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Matthew twenty four forty two. He was and he is Lord. He is your Lord and mine. Though for a time he made himself nothing, he didn't insist on his great powers, majesty as Godhead. He made himself nothing, as Paul writes to the church at Philippi and Philippi, Philippians 2. He nevertheless remained Lord and King. He fought, he overcame the devil, his whole dominion on the cross, Son of Man, Son of God, though to the human eye he appeared to hang there in no other capacity than a bleeding, beaten, suffering servant. The people, even the leaders of God's people, laughed him to scorn. While he appeared to go down to defeat 
he triumphed. He triumphed. And then when his task of dying for our salvation was finished, the veil that hid his glorious lordship was removed. Then he publicly showed himself to be the Lord of lords in heaven and on earth. The veil of the curtain of the temple, a very thick veil. Historians tell us that it was probably a hand breadth thick. It tore from top to bottom as the Lord Jesus Christ entered the presence of his father. And he entered there, as it says in that beautiful chapter 2 of the letter to the Hebrews. He entered as the high priest entered once a year into the holy place. With all those beautiful stones, the 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel on his chest. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Father, Here I am, and the children that you gave me. Here I am, and the children that you gave me, including the children in Elora, Ontario. And the children who right now may be coming out of the jungles of Brazil and Papua New Guinea, having learned of the Lord Jesus Christ and learned to confess his name. Christ Jesus said, here I am, and here are those children too. Not one of them, not one true believer is lost. And <clears throat> Now the Lord is not just any Lord. There are many masters, many lords who hold their servants and citizens, young and old, even in an iron grip. There are dictators, large and small. Oh, we know something about some of them, don't we? And sad enough, sometimes they could even be found in Christian circles or so-called Christian circles. Many oppressed and beaten down people today cry out for mercy, for deliverance, for freedom and for acceptance, adoption for citizenship. Isn't that why you know that? Isn't that why you are also opening your arms and your homes in order to give refuge to one of those Syrian refugees' families? They're looking for freedom and for acceptance. And I think also of to who today are captured and held for a ransom of silver and gold, some never seeing their family, never seeing freedom again. The rows of homeless, parentless people because of war or famine or terrorism hardly has one disaster abated, but another tragedy occurs and we cry. And the destitute, like slaves, make endless lines again. Yet here we are, the Lord's possession, servants, slaves of Christ. And while we live here below, such servants of Christ may constantly be on the run. Some are constantly on the run. They too may be made homeless, penniless, surviving on the handouts of some benevolent group or government. And even so, they are rich. They are rich. Even if, like Job, they're sitting on the dump, on the ash heap, and have to scrape the sores off their bodies with a piece of broken pottery. How is that possible? It's because their Lord, our Lord, is a compassionate master. He's faithful and just and very good. He testifies in his word, you are mine, all mine. And no one, 
No one shall snatch you from my hand. Indeed, in his word, our Lord's power is there unto our salvation. Gresham Macon, some of you will have heard that name. He was a faithful theologian who helped found Westminster Seminary in 1929. And he was instrumental in the formation of our sister church, the OPC. He once wrote these words. In the New Testament, the center of life and liberty and salvation is always found in God and in his Son. The gospel is the means whereby men are brought in from the cold world of sin into the warmth and the joy of God's house. That's what we confess here. Because you made this Lord your refuge. No better, because he reached out to draw us into his communion, into that fellowship which he loves, this fellowship. But then this Lord will surely require that those who are made his sons and daughters must serve him truly. They will have to bow and acknowledge his lordship, and that involves more than a nod of his head in his direction. More than a feeble, tacit realization that, yes, there is a Lord. No, we need to do that in all humility, don't we? Even when we have done everything we are told to do by our sovereign Lord, we have no right to any reward, nor can we elevate ourselves and say, oh, it's because we are a whole lot better than those people down the road, maybe. In Luke 17, our Lord taught his disciples an important lesson concerning sin and forgiveness and faith and duty. He ended that lesson by saying, you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. We are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So then let us. Let every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let every tongue confess. That's really a promise and it is a prophecy. A promise and a prophecy for today and tomorrow, even to the end of days when all will have to bow whether they like it or not when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and judges the universe, the world. They will have to bow their knees those knees of which Paul speaks, acknowledging that this Lord is master still. So then, living like children of the crown, like royal children ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, we will go into our reward. What did Paul say in Romans 8? If we are alive, if we are alive in Jesus Christ, that is, if our Lord Jesus Christ is in us and we in him, because his spirit is living in us. If our Lord Jesus Christ is he in whom we have that obligation, a lifelong obligation, not, not in order to live according to the sins of the flesh, not to shamelessly follow the imagination of our sinful human nature and the world and the devil, nor to live a life of pretenses. Yeah, we can do that too, sad enough a hypocritical way of life, living a lie, but living a life being led by the Spirit. Then, says Paul in Romans 8, we must be living to suffer for the sake of our master. That's a hard one. No one likes to suffer. 
but we must be willing to suffer for the sake of our master. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are his children. And now, if we are children, says Paul, we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. So then, also in the week that has already started, let us examine ourselves, you and I, freed from all the power of the devil, for whom then do you live? And how, and how, may it be that the price our Lord paid for our freedom may not be in vain. May it be that with uplifted heads we expect his return, soberly yet eagerly awaiting that day when the clouds will be pulled back and the Lord will come down. Praying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, for blessed is his glorious name through all eternity. The whole earth let your glory fill. Amen. So shall it be. Amen.